Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. It was like, here's what I do well. Can I monetize it? Can I turn that into a business? And people I asked were kind of like, yeah, I think you can. You have a big enough name, and the key is going to be be true to yourself. Here with Soledad O'Brien, one of the hardest working talents in TV journalism, on her network journeys, calling out BS in the industry, and making it out there on her own. Stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR member station VPM News, using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Joining me is one of the hardest working talents in the business, TV news and documentary veteran Soledad O'Brien. You know her from her years hosting CNN, NBC, and MSNBC. Soledad anchors and produces the Hearst TV program Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien and reports regularly for HBO's Real Sports. Our protagonist is now CEO of Soledad O'Brien Productions, where she produces content for documentaries, outlets, brands, the works. Did I fit all that in? You did, although I've never been called a protagonist before. I like that. I guess I get to be the I protagonist out of, of my own story. It's good. It's good. No, I'm not complaining. I ran out of I ran out of subjects and and, and uh, antecedents and everything. But I will say that you are one of the more omnivorous uh, personalities I know from this business. <laughs> that what is what is inspiring to me is you have this massive following on social media and on Twitter, and you didn't fade after you left CNN. What was it in in 2013? If anything, your voice has been amplified as a kind of an untethered independent. You can call out BS on CNN, at the New York Times, in mainstream media, on right-wing media, and not have to worry about, like like I believe you said to Rolling Stone, you don't care if they don't book you on Meet the Press. Yeah, that's a very freeing thing. And some of that is uh, being self-employed. And some of that is being 53 years old, where you're like, no, I'm good. Really do not need to come in on the weekend uh, and do hair and makeup. And and really, you know, that there are other platforms to be had. It's one of the things I do like about social media is that you don't need to tailor your message. You can say, this is what I have to say. And for people who are interested in hearing it, then great. And people who don't, also great. No worries. Have your contemporaries kind of in the business and former mentors and, and others suggested, hey, look, don't rock the boat like this. You want to you don't know what's going to happen. You're still beholden largely to the three or four uh empires that own all of these networks. I mean, CNN is owned by AT&T, NBC is owned by Comcast, or has the world changed sufficiently that we are kind of all our own creative masters in the digital world? I've had no mentor or any person kind of in the business tell me that at all. If anything, I think people encourage you to speak authentically. And, And frankly, I think all of those brands that you mentioned value a person who can grow an audience by speaking authentically. So I, I actually think it's a it's a plus, not a, a minus. I think the bigger challenge is in saying nothing or in sort of being milk toasty in what you have to say and being very contradictory in what you have to say, both sort of personally for your own sanity, but also to get people to respect you. I mean, I, I just don't I don't think that that's a win to say, well, you know, I've spent my entire career pulling punches and not rocking the boat, and everybody's really appreciated me for that. I don't think that ever happens, to be honest. Uh, Soledad, how do I get my head around what CNN is in the year 2020? Now, I've been watching it for my entire life. I remember uh, when, was it uh, uh, Bernard, uh, was it Bernard King had Bernard the camera Shaw. shut down on him? Bernard, in T- Shaw. Bernard Shaw. I'm sorry, Bernard Shaw, not Bernard King. Bernard had the camera shut down on him in Tiananmen Square. I remember watching the first Gulf War and all these other things transpire. I had my first TV hit ever on CNN. I believe it was with Kira Phillips back in, in 2002. It used to mean something very different than it kind of does now. And maybe at the turn of the century, it took uh, more of a tilt toward, I, I guess, shouting for the sake of shouting. Right now you see uh, these various split screens, four guests, eight guests. I don't know how much um, uh, whole grain I'm getting for the experience when I tune in, where in the past it was decidedly hard news. Yeah. And listen, I think CNN always was very frustrated with the idea, at least the years that I was there, that ratings were great when people, then something was happening, but the ratings were not when nothing was happening. People used to, I believe, wake up, turn on CNN, oh, the world is fine, and then they'd switch over to the show that was entertaining. And that was very frustrating. I mean, my bosses at the time, um, early on, and when I was at CNN, I started in 2003 there, you know, would try to figure out, like, well, how do we get those audiences? If it's Hurricane Katrina, our numbers would go into the millions of viewers. Sure. But if it's not, then they wouldn't, you know? 
So that was very frustrating to people who ran the network. And I think um, what they've tried to do of late is to figure out how do you, in a cost-effective way, become much more just chatter most of the time. CNN does a lot less reporting than when I was there and does a lot more pundits and talking heads. And I think part of the problem I have with punditry is that they're wrong very frequently mm. and they don't have much to say and they don't have tremendous insight, I believe. So they often now have pundits who are also reporters, so they kind of like glom onto the New York Times reporting or somebody else's reporting pretty sure. consistently. Um, but I, I, think, I, I think it's a mistake. And a part of the reason I think it's a mistake is that um, one thing we have found on our show that we do, Matter of Fact, which is a syndicated show, because we're not live, we can't do, you know, good morning, the president tweeted last night. We have to look at policy. So we do a lot of pieces and we do a lot of stories that are centered around people and not politicians. And when you set them up that way, it sort of doesn't necessarily matter what people's politics are. The issue matters, right? So just as an example, um, if you can't afford your kids insulin, it sort of doesn't matter if you're a hardcore Republican or, or a very, very liberal Democrat or somebody who hasn't voted ever. It just It's just a fact of policy is making something impossible for you to manage. And so we like to dig into it that way. I, I think it's a mistake to focus everything like a, you know, there's this versus this, which is what that kind of uh, back and forth between pundits sets up, right? There's this side and there's this side. When actually in a lot of situations, there's just something that has to be managed through and thought about and talked about. And so I think part of the polarization you see is that it's just cheap and easy to set up left versus right on cable news, frankly. Here's what I don't understand. Should it not be liberating to I'm, I'll take CNN and NBC News in, in sharp relief in this case. CNN is now owned by AT&T, which acquired the assets of Time Warner, right, which has HBO, the Warner Brothers Studios and whatnot. There is no way that CNN's uh, uh, revenue or its profits or anything could ever truly move the needle on a uh, on Ma Bell, a company as hulking as Ma Bell, which gets its money from wireless, from broadband, uh, which is spending a lot more time figuring out how to charge for HBO Max and, and streaming and whatnot than it is on CNN. CNN was kind of a curiosity that it inherited. And similarly, I can't imagine NBC News ever truly moving the needle at Comcast, you know, Cabletown. Maybe it's NBC's entertainment assets or the Today Show, which is accounted within NBC News. So why, and I'm not trying to sound naive, why aren't these guys then free to go and pursue hard news if there isn't such a hard and fast profit motive? I think there is always a profit motive. And I think for everybody who runs every division, that's what it's all about. It's all about making money and trying to figure out how to make more money. Uh, I would argue you don't need to be terrible to make money, right? Like you actually can figure out how to do a show and do reporting on a show and create content uh, and not have it be the very cheapest version, which is talking heads who kind of roll from one thing to the other. But that's the model that works at this moment. And now, and it's also what pushes people to say, well, the White House is a very distracting, very interesting um, kind of ball to keep in the air versus just covering it like you'd cover the White House. It becomes the centerpiece of all conversations, which is, I think, strategically very good for the president. It's kind of what he wants. So, you know, I think it sort of checks all the boxes very um, easily and, and consistently. Uh, and I think you, what you see a real problem is when you suddenly have a pandemic, you mostly have White House correspondents framing the coverage and framing how we think about a pandemic, which has obviously has some very big flaws in that. You know, and again, I mean, viewership can be through the roof right now. If Chris Cuomo or anybody has to zoom in, uh, everybody is self-quarantined. I saw a Wall Street Journal article recently that said before the pandemic, CNN was expected to generate about $1.7 billion in revenue this year, uh, until, with ad revenue expected to increase about 15% from last year to $667 million. But an analyst for Kagan S&P— Because it's an election says, year, right? So that's partly an election year. That, that increase is it's an election year, so you're going to get a lot of even revenue. Then, even then, now they're expecting, because of this enormous hit to the advertising industry, that same analyst expects CNN's ad revenue to decrease in the double-digit percentage range yep. this year. Well, because you, um, you've lost so much ad revenue, right? It's terrible for everybody. And this is why you're seeing all these you know, news organizations lay people off, because the ad revenue is, is 
deadly. The economy is taking a massive hit. When the economy takes a massive hit, the news org's taking a massive hit as well. So yeah, CNN was poised, and everybody was poised to do well in election year. It's sort of why they like election year as a drama, mm. right? Because if it becomes a dramatic narrative, then people want to watch those debates. If it's boring, then nobody cares, and you, you know you're not going to get the ad rates that you you wanted. And so I think that that's part of it. Uh, but yes, you now have a, a problem in that your uh, ad revenue is going to be way down just because of coronavirus, for sure. Is there anyone out there that has successfully convinced the uh, the journalism-minded subscriber to actually pay for content, to not be complacent and to be cross-subsidized by advertising? I mean, the New York Times has had huge success mm -hmm. since the election of Donald Trump. Other newspapers and outlets are subsidized by billionaires. They subsidize the losses. Uh, I haven't seen an example out there where people uh, in a way like Netflix or Spotify are saying, nope, it, it is my responsibility to pay and to pay up for the news. Yeah, I think that's a, a tough thing. I the New York Times has done very well. And actually, one of the most frustrating things about the New York Times is that they think their coverage is always right because they'll tell you about their digital subscribers. <laughs> it's like, yes, that doesn't necessarily mean that your headline wasn't terrible uh, and flawed and bad. Um, so uh, for sure, I think that they're doing well. And I think there are some others. You know, I, I'd be curious to know about the Miami Herald. Um, just because I, I know so many people anecdotally who really like their coverage yeah, and some of the it's, things. It's great and it's suffering. The, the company McClatchy recently had to seek bankruptcy protection. I mean, I've never found that journalism as indispensable as it is. If you think about Julie Brown right. and the Jeff Epstein coverage and everything else that they're doing. But when you're kind of reduced after a decade plus of cutbacks to say, all right, readers, we really need you now to subscribe, you kind of don't really have much leverage. Right. No, you don't at all. And that's the difference because Netflix never said, okay, guys, we've been giving this to you for free or very inexpensively, and now we need you to, to give us money, $9.99 or whatever Netflix is now. <laughs> you know, they've started off with, here's what we're going to do, and we're going to serve it up to you, and we're going to give you some, some choice and some opportunities and make it very easy to use, et cetera, et cetera. So I think journalism kind of missed the boat early on for the most part about how do you figure out how to charge people for content? That I think a lot of, uh, especially print organizations would tell you, like they just didn't get on the bandwagon of thinking about that early enough. So, Doc, can you take me back on your vision quest when you when you left CNN? Was it in 2013? Vision quest. Uh, yes, it was in 2013. In the, I think the summer so what did of you, 2013. Did you, I like to use these metaphors. I mean, I think it, it helps our, our listeners imagine your scenario. Did you go out and talk to various producers and mentors? I know that it's been a revolving door over there, but at the same time, it's terrifying to step away from a big flagship, which can cross-subsidize various things. You might be able to take several weeks to do a longer doc project or a couple of months. But now you're out on your own and you're pounding the pavement at a time when the business model of this entire industry is significantly in question. And moreover, they're, they're cord cutters. Yes, everybody has moved consumption, the bulk of it, to online, but you know you're trading dollars for, for pennies and nickels there. Yeah, it didn't really work like that for me. Um, I much more felt like the... The, what I wanted to do, I wasn't going to be able to do there. And so it was made very clear to me that I could stay. They asked me to stay, but that they were like, meh, you know, we don't dislike you. We just don't love you. And I, I've sort of never been the person who wants to stay in a place where your bosses don't have a vision for your success. Uh, I felt like I'd had a lot of success. We had done a, I think I did 50, almost 50 docs when I was at CNN. And, um, and so it felt like, well, I think that there's a viable business model. And I sat down with my husband uh, and we would sit down and be like, you know, is there a model where you yourself could go and do the things you want to do? Could you build a business off of the work that you've done and the quality of your reporting? That was really the question. It wasn't a vision quest. It was, it was the same question I had years ago when I left KRON TV in San Francisco, mostly because I had a boss who was kind of like, you're fine. And if you want to stay, you can stay. But... I don't think you should learn how to anchor. I don't really see a big role for you, but you're fine. Like you are a perfectly fine employee. Well, who wants to work in a place where people are like, you're, you'll do. <laughs> so I, I think I've always been a little pigheaded on that front of, you know, sure, it might come down to me one day being in a place where people are just tolerating me and I take my check every two weeks and, you know, we all just kind of slide in and out of the door, but that sounds terrible. That really does not sound like what I thought I could do. 
And also, I made a ton of money at CNN, and I saved a ton of money when I was at CNN. So I mm. knew I could start, at least at the beginning, I had the finances to be able to build a company. Like, I could go and rent space in New York City, which is expensive. I could hire people mm. right away. And in fact, CNN became my first client. Uh, my exit deal made them invest in a bunch of projects that I was doing. So, Ooh. yeah, it's kind of a good deal. So, and I took my library with me, which I thought I'd be able to monetize. So, you know, I think it was that. It was like, is this other option as good or a better option than just staying in a place where people are like, you can stay? But I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's the same advice I'd give my kids. Like, if your boss isn't psyched about having you and isn't like, I see a vision where, whew, in five years, you know what I want you to be doing? then why would, you know, they don't feel that way. Why would you want to stay? And the answer might be, you know, sometimes you have to. Sometimes it's like, yep, this is what you're going to do. You've tried other things. It didn't work. I wasn't sure that running a company, I wasn't sure I'd be good at it because I'd never done it. And mm. when you're an anchor person, you don't really run anything. You have a show, but it's very collaborative. You, the only person I'd ever really hired, I had a babysitter and I had a assistant. And even then, my assistant was like hired by CNN, so I didn't even really have an assistant. I had kind of like say in an assistant. So I wasn't sure I'd be able to run something. Uh, and in the first year was a little tough. Just be financially, it was fine because we were, we were profitable right away because of these deals from the get-go. But the harder thing was like wrapping your head around, what does it mean to be the CEO? What, what do you cover? What do you want to do? What's your job? What do you want to grow into? How many employees? I remember looking at our first office space and and the guy's like, so how many square feet do you need? I'm like, how the f*** would I know? I don't know. I mean, literally like 1,500, 3,000, 5,000, 200. I, I, I had no idea. And I'm not, I couldn't even tell you how many people you can put in 1,500 square feet. So, you know, so things like that, which are like, What's your vision for your company? I wasn't sure I had a vision outside of here's the stuff I think I'm good at that I think if I just did on my own, I could monetize. And we were able to get that done. You know, what you realize and what's really changed in the last five years for me, when I started, people would say things like, oh, that's such a great story. It's so earnest. A lot of journalism was earnest, right? And earnest was deadly. If someone in media was telling you your story was earnest, it was a very, very, very nice way of saying they hated it. <laughs> oh, so earnest. And what I found was over the last five years, suddenly earnest became a plus, right? Like, um, mm. what was that show that was done on Lifetime about R. Kelly? Um, what was it called? Uncovering R. Kelly or... Um, but, you know, it was a really remarkable... Um, series that they did on live, you know, that's the height of earnestness, a bunch of women of color who find their voice to say that a superstar has attacked them, is keeping them hostage. I mean, it's crazy. And so that's really changed. So a lot of the things that we were pitching and doing early on that I think people didn't love over the last five years have become very interesting because people actually do care about them. They care about race and class and lack of and poverty and projects we've been working on for a long time that I think used to be the purview of news that no longer are. So my whole thing was never, you know, my Soledad's vision quest. I have four kids. You don't get to have a vision quest. <laughs> my husband would be like a vision quest. All right, kill, kill, that, kill that metaphor. I should have said I know, exploratory committee. You, but or... it's, vision quest sounds so amazing, <laughs> but it's, it's, it was never that. It was like, here's what I do well. Can I monetize it? Can I turn that into a business? And people I asked were kind of like, yeah, I think you can. You have a big enough name and the key is going to be be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. And our biggest challenges early on, doing everything non-exclusively, you know, because a lot of people were like, well, we want to hire you exclusively. I'm like, I'm just not exclusive. So if you want to hire me and it has to be exclusive, I have to say no. And that was, you know, that was probably the hardest thing. And that was a really good fight to have because we ended up having lots of clients and lots of different projects and kind of created a, a company that had sort of a, a dynamic of four verticals, journalism and documentaries. We do some branded within the company itself and also what I would call talent. So 
stuff that I wasn't necessarily producing, but I got to be talent on. Wait, so you tell me you can become my agent? <laughs> I can hook you up with a good agent. <laughs> That's but good. you know, it's interesting. Like, yeah, you could say, <laughs> you could run around and say, yes, I could. If someone was looking for somebody, sure, why not? Why could I not be your agent and get you the terms? The thing that I have really learned that I've loved about running my own company, when you work for somebody, all that's on the table is, so they want to pay you $5, your agent will say, but I can get them to $5.50. And they want to give you three weeks of vacation, I can get them to four. That's usually all you get. I remember when I discovered that Larry King had access to the Time Warner jet. I'm like, the jet? Who knew the jet was a, <laughs> was a thing you could negotiate? Oh. I've been missing out all these years. But what I really, what you realize when you run your own thing is those don't have to be the parameters. What do you want? Mm. You know, so you go into people and you're like, well, what do you need? And sometimes they'll say, well, I need to be able to also work on this podcast. Or I have a kid and every Friday afternoon I need to be able to leave at noon because she's in ballet camp. You know, and you're like, okay, we can make this work. It's been so interesting to figure out the deals to be done. I, I, it's, it's one of the most exciting things I do. So I've really, really enjoyed it. For my part, I need a quality hookup to four-ply Cottonelle, which is very hard to get your mitts on right <laughs> I now, can but, hook uh, you up. I digress. Listen, <laughs> I can hook you up. Here's why. I have four kids, so we have always bought in bulk. So when, when this whole thing happened, I literally had a ton of toilet paper in my closet because I have four kids. So I just packed it all up and left town with all my boxes of toilet paper. And I've been shipping it to people, my friends. So if you need toilet paper, you, you heard you heard it here. You heard it here first. Full disclosure. Well, I can send you a roll or two. I can hook you up. But you know, we've always bought that toilet paper and then also cleaning supplies we've always bought in bulk over the years. So uh, so we were kind of good for that. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Soledad O'Brien, a veteran journalist. You recognize her from anchoring at CNN, from NBC News, MSNBC. I think I remember you with some sort of robotic avatar oh in the gosh, late 90s the on MSNBC. Yes, 96 when MSNBC It was like a Max, Max Hedrum type, exactly. Max Hedrum that type character Leo, where it was... Leo Laporte was the, was the guy. But that was a great example. And people example. forget that it was it was conceived as the Microsoft NBC network. The MS is Microsoft, and they Microsoft used to own Slate and everything. It was a different time. It really was. And, you know, it was so funny. People used to say, you know, how much of your direction are you getting from Bill Gates? And I'm like, literally none. We can't get him on the phone. We'd love to get Bill Gates on our show. We cannot get him on our show. Um, but no, you know, it, but that's a really interesting example because I had been working in local news. So at KRON TV, which I mentioned, and when something else came along, it was like, okay, this is weird. And I don't know a lot about technology. I'd done a lot in science and medicine, but I jumped because it felt like an opportunity to grow and build a skill set and try something different. And I got to be me, right? I didn't have to pretend to be, oh, I'm Soledad O'Brien. I know everything about tech. I was like, I'm Soledad O'Brien, relatively smart person. And I don't understand this thing about tech. Can you guys explain it? And I think that that was, again, a turn in my career where people thought I was crazy. Like, why would you leave to go to this thing that no one had ever heard of? Because it was launching. And it just seemed to me like build skills. I have to ask you, where did you get the inception of your courage? I understand that you were a pre-med at, at, at Harvard, Radcliffe, and you decided to leave early to go into TV news? Yeah, well, I, I mean, leave early is a nice way to put it. I kind of dropped out because I decided not to go to med school. My sister and I were taking classes together. She's a surgeon now, and I'm not. And, uh, and part of the reason was, I remember she said to me once, like, you're just not passionate about this. You have to memorize everything. And I used to have a very good memory. And in, in, in pre-med stuff, it's a lot of it is just committing stuff to memory. And I just remember thinking, like, she's right. I just, I don't really want to understand the science, but I'm pretty good at regurgitating it. And it was a very big crisis of like, oh, God, what am I going to do? My whole life I've been planning to go to med school. And uh, I, I dropped out of school and I started working at a TV station. How did you tell your parents? I don't. Can you go back and fill me in on this? Is yeah. this the mid 80s? Uh, it was 87, 86, probably 86, 87. Yeah. You know, actually, I think they were fine with it because what I told them, I told them that I was going to I didn't want to go to med school. And, and they were fine with that. I think that that. That was never a big issue for them. But they weren't the kind of parents that you could sit on the couch and like eat Cheetos. So in the same breath, I told them that I'd gotten a job working at a TV station. So it wasn't like, I'm going to sit here and try to figure it out. It was much more like, listen, I think I got to figure out what I want to do. It's not going to be med school. I got a job working at a TV station. 
So it was like, okay, well, you know, that'll be okay. Then you're, you're working and doing something. And I, I knew I was going to go back. And I think they knew I was going to go back. Um, the problem I had at the risk of sounding like I'm bragging on myself was I, I, I was successful. And so I, I didn't really, it was not easy to go back because I kept getting jobs. And again, the early jobs in TV are like fetching coffee, answering phones, running scripts, removing staples from walls. I mean, it's not, you know, you're not operating on people or something, but I, so I never really thought of it as, as bravery or courage to do something. I left a job where a boss made it very clear that he thought I was average for him. And I, not that I thought I was a superstar, but I just have never liked, I never want to be part of a team where everybody's okay with meh. <laughs> just, it's just not inspiring. And I don't like- You're talking about leaving CNN. I'm not. I'm talking about leaving Cron to go to start- Cron. To go to MSNBC, but even leaving med school, like same thing, or leaving the idea of finishing up to go to med school- like, why would you want to go do a thing that you're clearly not passionate about? I was always very grateful that I identified it kind of early. And really, my sister did for me because we were taking organic chemistry together. Yeah, organic chemistry seems to be the filter where people have that quarter-life crisis and say, what the heck am I doing? I mean, if it doesn't hit you in high school, then it hits you by the, the second or third year of college. But I will say this, that even then in college, the group think persists. I mean, a lot of people funnel into law school because they don't know what else to do. A lot of people funnel into investment banking jobs like I did, which was wretched, which was miserable, but what are you supposed to do, right? Yeah. There's all of this pressure that I, if I could talk to my 21, 22-year-old self and and say, look, I mean, Farzad, you don't have to kill yourself. Um, all of these various beautiful women around the world want to meet you. You shouldn't be holed up in an office, putting pitch books together, working <laughs> under an investment bank. I just tried to crack a joke. I didn't get a laugh anyway. You, I but anyway, did laugh. Uh, you didn't hear me. Listen. No, no, you, you cried on my behalf. But then that group <laughs> think persisted well into my 30s and so did that until I had my child, my son. I didn't appreciate how fully I had to have more than a modicum of passion when I left every morning to go and do what I did. And that was the turning point for me. So I envy the fact that you had it, what, halfway through Harvard? I didn't. I just knew that I didn't have the passion, actually. I really realized, like, oh, she's right. I just am faking it. And I am a good memorizer. And I can, I can give you the structure of every molecule. And that will get me through what I need to get through. But I actually am not interested enough to be able to tell you why this formula is what it is. She could tell you why this formula had to be what it was, because she mm. cared about understanding the formula. I was just like, hey, on this quiz, all you need to know is the formula and stuff some numbers in. And that's the difference between people who are really passionate and understand and, and are scientists, right? And other people who are like, oh, I can get this done. I can do well on this test. So I think knowing what I didn't want to do probably was the first key thing. And then I happened to, in the I went through the, Harvard has a book called The Harvard Guide to Careers, actually, they used to. And I went through, and I'm like, okay, I can't be an investment banker. That would be a disaster. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. I thought maybe advertising, although I wasn't that interested in pitching products. And I'm like, oh, maybe I should try working at a TV station. And so I applied and I got a job, uh, entry level job, but I loved it. I loved it. What did you love about it? And I want to I want to ask you this specifically. You were born Maria de la Soledad Teresa O'Brien, and you took the handle Soledad O'Brien into TV from day one. Correct. <laughs> correct. Yeah. Yeah. And was there pushback people, yeah. from producers or for yeah. homogeneity? Talk to me about that. No, not from producers ever, because no one cares who, if you're getting someone's coffee. <laughs> like whatever your name is, go get it. Um, when I started to think about being on, no, but camera, when you became on-air talent yeah. or when your byline was was on the Avatar yeah. earlier, early for my very early job uh, applications, yes, it was a problem. I remember one guy, I think it was in Hartford, and he said, "You know, would you change your name?" And it was such a weird request because my boss, in fact, her name was Jean Bollocky. And she had changed her name to Jean Blake because that was a very typical conversation, like Bollocky. She was a woman from Minnesota. And so, mm. uh, but I, it was just not even going to happen. I mean, it wasn't, I don't even think, it wasn't even a real conversation. Like it wasn't, they were giving me a job. It was just sort of a question that was posed because he thought Soledad was a difficult name. And um, so it never really became a thing. So it never was like a real decision where I, I always joke that. You know, I was named after the Virgin Mary, so that obviously wasn't going to happen. But but it never was an issue. No one seriously ever, ever really asked me, like, hey, we're giving you this job, but to take this job, you need to change your name. That never happened because when I was applying early on, I didn't get a job. 
uh, I had hoped to get some jobs and I, and I didn't. I kept working as a producer where nobody cared what your name was. And, and actually, by the time I started working in TV news, I think things had changed a little bit and people were more, were better at kind of, I remember, um, Richard Corvo at NBC is like, I'm only going to have a network full of people with interesting names. I'm like, okay, I support that. <laughs> David, oh, David Corvo, David Corvo. I support that, David Corvo. Uh, great guy. And so, you know, and, 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 but I, you know, like that, that was a bit of a turn, you know, and that probably was in 91 or 92, where it was like, oh, that's just interesting now um, versus weird. And you probably should think about changing it. Um, so no, I, I think it never, it didn't feel brave. It felt like, okay, I can't do this. I, I, this is not what I want to do. My biggest issues were early on. You just didn't make enough money, you know? And so I was always very lucky cause I had friends who'd say like, I can get you a cheap apartment or I could help you, you know, whatever. Um, but, uh, and then, you know, I grew up a very middle-class family, so it wasn't, it, it's not like that my parents gave me money, but they'd bring you home for Thanksgiving kind of thing, right? Or if they came to visit, sure. they'd buy lunch or dinner or whatever. Um, you know, so I, I think it just was always about, is this what I want to be doing? And so it never felt brave. It just felt like, well, if you're only making $11,000 a year, it's not really brave to go jump off and do something else because you can, I can get a job kind of anywhere and make $11,000 a year. You know, it didn't feel like a big, scary step. Um, I think it's actually sometimes harder to go, you know, I've had friends who, who got jobs in PR and they were making a lot like good money, you know, and they're like, but I really want to be a journalist. And they never would go back yeah. because they would make, you know, good money. Uh, and I just kind of wanted to keep increasing. I made 11,000, then I moved to 25,000, then I was able to get 40,000, you know, like chunks bigger and bigger every single step that I took. Tell me about the call up to the Peacock. What was it? MSNBC in the mid 1990s. Uh, it was a, a weekend morning show called The Site. No, it was a weekend morning show and a technology program called The Site, which you co-hosted with a virtual character named Dev Null. Did you propose this show to, to MSNBC? Did they seek you out from San Francisco no, local news? How did that happen? David Borman, actually, uh, uh, I had worked with a little bit at NBC and he called, reached out to me and I remember they were looking for a guy, me and a guy. And at some point they said, um, uh, David would say, we don't need a guy. It can be fine. We, you know, and so it was going to be a, a show that was going to launch when MSNBC was launching and it was anchoring, which I hadn't done, but it was anchoring on tape. So it felt like not particularly, even though it was a daily show, we taped the show. So I thought that was a good sort of, career builder because I was going to learn a skill without being kind of put out there to flounder. And, um, and then later he said to me that he was always looking for a guy, but he'd tell me, no, no, we don't need that. No, that does, that's so traditional. You'll be fine. And he'd, he'd say, I'd walk out of his office. He'd be like, oh my God, get me a guy to co-anchor with Soledad. Because I think people, you know, that was a very traditional format. Dev Null, I remember thinking that it was going to end my career because who would work with a virtual character? Leo Laporte was the journalist, a very well-known, super well-respected tech journalist. Uh, who was um, helping to run this project. And Leo and I did this show together. It was a lot of fun, actually. But I remember telling David that if if he, like, if it, if I thought it was going to ruin my career, that I could leave, <laughs> like, I could walk off. Because it seemed insane to work with a, a virtual character. And then you got the call up to NBC News proper, right, at the turn of the century. I love saying the turn of the century on this show. It makes me sound so rarefied. It sounds so we're so old. You know, I had already worked at NBC because I had been a producer for Bob Bazell before the turn of the century, 1987. Mm. So my first job was in Boston. Then I went to NBC to be a field producer, associate producer and field producer for Bob Bazell. And then I went to KRON in San Francisco. So I had already been at the network and I kind of knew a lot of the people there. And so, yeah, the call up, um, well, MSNBC killed my show. And so I could stay in San Francisco. But it's one of those things I'm like, you don't need to move. And I'm like, yes, but what will I do here? <laughs> NBC San Francisco is not like the big giant NBC bureau or something. So I went back to New York. My husband was still working in San Francisco. And I started uh, anchoring for MSNBC and filling in at times for NBC News. And so my big How call up was oh, not gotta... really a call up. It was yeah. like, I better get to work or I'm just going to kind of 
be lost while I'm, you know, you'd had to work out your, your contract. So that's kind of what happened. If you think about all of the uh, men whose person, whose biographies were kind of, you know, their reputations were ruined. They, they, they've kind of were canceled by everything that's happened in the Me Too culture. I wonder people who came to the networks beforehand, how long did it take for you as a young woman to know that uh, there were predators roaming this land of network news? Like, I, I never imagined, you know, like Charlie Rose or the head of CBS or various people from ABC News in their time there, uh, clearly what happened with Matt Lauer at the Today Show. I think back and I try to, you know, because I, I went on many of these programs and I had zero inkling, zero indication, uh, zero fingerprints left anywhere that this kind of stuff was happening. So it, it, my first job in Boston, I remember my boss telling me how people, how he hired talent because I was asking him, I was like, listen, I know I'm a, a production assistant, but, you know, if I could do something on air and he's like, you know, basically, here's how I hire talent. I plug in at that point, it was three quarter inch tapes, the big giant ones. And he said, I turn the sound down. And then he basically said, and I look to see if I want to have sex with them, which is not the words he used, but what he was saying. And so I remember thinking like, oh, oh, wow. And I was 20 or something like, oh, okay. But, um, but I missed all of those signs too. I have to say I had virtually no me to what I would call like serious me too moments in my career. Mm. Even that guy, when he and I were in the newsroom together, and sometimes it would just be the two of us. And he was kind of notorious for sleeping with a lot of people. He literally would come in and wave to me and then go fall asleep in his office. <laughs> I'm like, oh, so the guy who's like literally sleeping with everybody does not want to even flirt with me. Okay, that's <laughs> how do I take that? Um, so, you know, so I, I but literally like that guy who would have been the guy, zero, it never was, it was nothing but nice to me. Only polite. It left me alone completely um, and gave me good opportunities, you know, when, when he wanted to. Uh all the things that you missed, I, I would say I missed. I, I never saw the Matt Lauer thing coming at all. And I, you know, co-anchored some shows with him and was obviously in the building all the time. Um, I never knew about Charlie Rose, although I wasn't at CBS at the time. Uh, so I, I think it's easy to miss if you're not in it. I never had any, I had some creepy moments, but I think everybody on any job anywhere has creepy moments. But I certainly wouldn't call them these horrifying Me Too stories that other people have shared. Wow. I mean, I, I, I think, is it is it something that you exuded, maybe a don't F with me thing early on, that this confidence that you had coming out of Harvard taking this leap of faith, going from Carowen to MSNBC and other places, that it was, it was understood at the very outset that this is not a person you're going to trample on? No, I think my white bosses didn't think I was attractive. Really? Truly. I post on Twitter that I'm having Soledad O'Brien on this, and various people are telling me that you were their high school crush and not. And you're telling me that your bosses didn't think you were attractive. That that is just. I don't think that that's was. I mean, I really. I, I uh, maybe attractive is the wrong way to put it. I just don't think that people wanted to hit on me. Like I don't. I don't think thinking someone is going to be a challenge is a put off for guys. I think for a lot of people, it's very appealing. Um, so. I, I had just some people who were jerks, I would say, but I, I never had some weird power balancey kind of thing where you're like, wow, if I don't do this, will I lose my job? Or this person's putting me in a really uncomfortable position because of the power dynamic. Never, never. I mean, really. Every so often you'd have someone grab you and, you know, like that was icky and stuff like that, but never, nothing that was like a power dynamic. No, never. I, I literally thought my, my first boss, who was nothing but him, mean, he was perfectly nice to me. He just did not at all find me attractive, which I was lucky because I think if he had, what a horrifying experience to be alone in a room with a person who's hitting on you. You're 20 and they're mm. 50. Like that would have been terrible. So I was really, he let me do my job and I sat there while he crashed in his office and I sat there and did my job until I, you know, got another job. So I, 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 I truly, I don't think it was some like, hey, don't f with me. I'm Soledad. And I'm, you know, I think it was like, yeah, meh, <laughs> not interested. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Soledad O'Brien. Uh, she is now CEO and founder of Soledad O'Brien Productions, where she produces and creates and hosts content for all manner of outlets, documentaries, brands. She was 
uh, for a long time at both CNN and NBC News and MSNBC. I love following you on Twitter, where you have north of a million followers. And one of the great things I love doing on Twitter is seeing you call out bull shattery from the mainstream or otherwise press. For example, there's uh, it's a full time job. It's Seriously, great. So presswatchers.org. Yeah, Dan Frumkin at PressWatchers.org posts, if New York Times reporters are going to take it upon themselves to say what Trump's, quote, focus is, then they should write the truth. His focus is on him, what he thinks will get him attention, distract from his incompetence, and inflame the racism, xenophobia, and chaos amid which he thrives. To which you said, the New York Times can discern for us what Trump's, quote, focus is, but struggle to use the word lies. You separately in another tweet called out the, was it the White House Correspondents Association for throwing a farewell reception for Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Was it like, how could you guys do this? Um, seriously, can someone from the White House Correspondents Association explain why they threw a little shindig for Sarah Sanders when she left her gig? A woman from political organized, if I recall correctly, the press secretary who undermined the very jobs of the White House Correspondent Association. Weird, right? Uh, you have your own platform here. This does not have to be distilled through a booker or a producer or somebody in your ear telling you to pipe down. Yeah, no, it's really nice, actually. And I try to deal in in facts uh, all the time. Um, uh, you know, so, for example, that conversation we were having today, it's because someone from the White House, I think Yahoo News guy, was sort of saying that he felt like people were pushing the White House reporters or White House correspondents to be activists. And I'm like, it's not being an activist to not ask, you know, yes, no questions. It's not being an activist to put context into things. I'm like, stop being whiny. Go do your job. Some people do a good job. Some people don't do a good job. But, you know, this I, and, and I think what was really weird was Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who I thought really undermined the job of White House correspondents in so many ways. Why would the White House Correspondents Association member throw her a going away party? A little, you know, like, a, I mean, I just think that's crazy. Uh, listen, and I also was never one who would ever uh, go to, uh, at some point I stopped going to the White House Correspondents Dinner because I'm like, this is a weird thing. Are we covering the president or are we not? <laughs> like, it, why are why are people going to, to make jokes and bring the bold-faced headline person of the day to this thing? It's just a weird, it's weird. And I thought it was tacky and bad, so I stopped doing it. I went a couple of times. To that end, what are your thoughts when you see the Cuomo brothers enjoying a moment of, of levity nightly? You know, one from his basement, the other, the, the governor of New York, who's in this kind of uh, uh, fight for the survival of my state and, and city battle with the White House. Um, there are many, for example, in my household, you said it was a welcome you know, respite from all of the terrible news we had to see these guys banter back and forth about their mom and high school accolades and whatnot. But there's something, frankly, about it that kind of bothers me. Again, this goes back to that conversation where you're departing from news and it becomes like, well, this is a this is a person. This is this is deadly serious. You're covering the governor of New York, ground zero for the United States. And at what point do you blur the lines and it becomes, you know, brother and brother? Uh, should you save that maybe for another wing of, of AT&T Warner Brothers? Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. I've never liked that kind of stuff where there's banter. And it's it's happened a lot. I remember once CNN was doing a video behind the scenes. I think we were covering it. might have been Katrina or some other. It was a disaster. Maybe it was Columbine. Something terrible. And people are like waving into the camera. And you're like, oh, my God, who is shooting this? And I get it because when you are working on a disaster – you're working long hours, you're working hard, you get this crazy camaraderie and it, you know, but it's utterly inappropriate, right? Like you just wouldn't want to shoot that and have that be the story of covering a disaster, even though people do use a lot of sick humor in order to get through it. Um, so I, I'm with you. It's like, I just don't like that kind of thing. I remember thinking, wow, I wish someone had told all these people you know, you're on camera. Remember, this is about fill-in-the-blank disaster. Um, you, you don't have to say, hi, mom. Like, that looks very weird. Uh, so I think people get that wrong a lot. And I think there's often a goal of making the reporters like characters. You know, let, here's a character. Mm. Uh, I think that's a mistake. But, um, you know, but but I'm, I'm not surprised. And I, I do know people who think it's really charming and nice and, you know. I'm not necessarily one of them, but I don't watch it that much, so it probably doesn't. Nobody probably cares what I think about it. Well, I do have another hot potato for you. Is and I don't. I frankly don't understand this. Is is 
Chris Saliza of CNN, he's consistently the most read, the most emailed uh, CNN political correspondent or columnist on their website. Why is he such a lightning rod for all sorts of journalists? People at Slate dinging him, people at The Washington Post, uh, other hard news reporters. Is it the both-sidism? Is it, is it um, that he's practicing a sort of a, a kind of a chummy journalism or an access journalism with this White House that maybe he shouldn't? I, I never quite understood the... the uh, the, the fury that he provokes. He is the face of the mediocre white dude reporter to me. He's the face of it. If you look at his work over the last three years, you just see some of these headlines and some of these stories. Donald Trump is the greatest reality show ever. And then he goes on to describe what actually anybody who's worked in reality TV, as I have, uh, you'd say, well, Reality TV actually knows exactly how it's going to end. You know, so what you're describing is not a reality TV. Your whole entire premise is wrong. Um, just some of the things that he, the way he treats these things as if they're jokes, which is fine, unless you're a person of color, where laws around immigration, uh, racist comments, those things are actually quite mm. serious and quite upsetting. And he thinks they're funny. And his, you know, Democrats, you know, who would the Democrats be in Games of Thrones? You're like, wow, this is a really serious time. And I realize that you don't give a f but other people really do care about certain people's rights being denied, uh, that there's a bunch of people who can't get access to immigration courts. Like there's important stuff going on. You have a platform. You have an opportunity to be telling these stories and someone pays you cash money to do it. And it's funny to you. It's a joke. So, yeah, no, I think he is a really great example of just mediocrity. He's the face of but mediocrity. It, but they are hiring, I mean, to the extent that they're investing in digital. This seems to be what the entertainment conglomerate believes works in digital. It gets clicks. It gets views. Love it or hate it. It's making news. It's getting tweeted. He's changed his tune. He's changed his he – doesn't, he doesn't write that stuff anymore. You know, he's become more serious. I think at some point, right, things started to affect him. Um, you know, uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, I'm surprised to hear that he's the most shared. I'd be curious what that is because I think he's just not, I mean, I don't think there's anybody who says, oh my God, thank God Chris Eliza has gotten some analysis in. I really didn't understand, you know, his idea of analysis was, you know, Dems as Game of Thrones characters. It's just, it's, it's just the idea there's well, that cross pollinates an HBO franchise as well. Possibly, but the, like, I mean, you know, if you're doing if you're doing hashtag, if you're fishing for kind of hashtag clicks, I mean, this I remember in in, in the kind of a digital journalism thing. It is a race to the bottom right now. If you're trying to get retweets and clicks and the like, uh, the hard news things, the hard investigations, the big, uh, heavily expensive reported packages, they they don't seem to have any sort of return on investment, and it brings us back. To, to you know the beginning of our conversation here is who is doing it correctly out so, there but right I'm gonna, now? But is, I'm, I'm the gonna disagree with for... you though but I'm gonna disagree so I did an interview the other day about 20 minutes long mm. with Sarah Cody she's the head of public health in the Bay Area Santa Clara County and we talked about public health right and like I think that has five million viewers now on YouTube and, and, and I'm not saying that to brag I'm just saying that to tell you that there's no show on CNN that has five million viewers. Right, that we did, they they called me up and said, "Would you interview her?" I'm like, "Sure, I'd have lots of questions to ask her. Should I wear a mask? You know, basic like public health, which is a really, really, really boring topic mm. usually." So I disagree, and our entire show, matter of fact, has been structured in this idea of these stories are inherently interesting. People actually do want to understand about why has housing gotten so expensive when income has not risen to meet it. They do, our, the, our, our most popular show on, on um, a matter of fact, uh, which is about 2 million, we usually get somewhere between a million five and 2 million viewers. So this one had 2 million viewers, was a half hour on solar power coming to uh, Puerto Rico in the wake of the hurricane, right? And mm -hmm. I imagine walking into someone's office saying, I have an idea, whoo you're going to love this one. Solar power in Puerto Rico. So Soledad, you have that leverage and agency now to go to an outlet and say, this is what I want to cover. And you can be the one that picks it up. And, and you can decide and not have to bend to the contours of, well, actually, we would not want a, a hard, what did you use the, the adjective before that's very earnest. solemn or that's very earnest? earnest. <laughs> that's too earnest for us. Yeah. Well, I mean, earnest is, sells. To some right degree. Now. 
yes. I mean, obviously, I am run a production company like everybody else. I need to sell stuff to networks uh, and outlets that are looking for specific things, right? So I'm not going to march into uh, MSNBC and say, boy, do I have a great animation show for you. It doesn't work like that. Mm. But I think what you do is you find those places where your values align with their values, where the stories you want to tell align with things that, that they're interested in telling. And then you find a common ground in how to do it. I just, this idea, the shorthand that everything has to be stupid in order for people to appreciate it and like it is not true. And I'd like a fun joke on, on Twitter and on Instagram as much as anybody else. But I think people actually really are moved by important stories and historical context and they want to understand issues. Again, we've had so much, our second most popular show, for a matter of fact, was a look at what's really happening along the Texas border. Our most recent show, which had just under 2 million viewers, and I have a joke with my boss that I have to buy him this fair, he's a big wine, fancy wine guy, so he says I have to buy him a fancy bottle of wine when we get to our 2 millionth viewer, which is better than CNN shows, by the way. Uh, is we just did a half an hour that looked at women who are incarcerated and raising their children behind bars. None of these stories would you be like, whoa, Soledad, that's salacious. Oh, my God. <laughs> You'd say, wow, that's kind of thoughtful and interesting. So, yes, I do run around. We have a doc that's going to air that we were um, pitching uh, to a bunch of different outlets that looks at coronavirus. It actually takes place when <laughs> we were shooting a doc on homelessness in Seattle when coronavirus mm. broke out. And the, and, the, and the pitch is essentially, what do you do when you're covering a crisis and then a crisis breaks out? And we embedded with the public health officials and also homeless people and people who are trying to get their parents out of uh, nursing homes while they all try to deal with like a struggling public health system. So, yeah, we have buyers for that that'll air next month. I mean, it's, I, actually, I'm going to text you the um, sizzle for that. It's amazing. Oh, we're in the middle of editing that doc. I can't believe I'm on a text-to-text -text basis with Soldata Brian. Know, right? Jump, it's so I'm good. You can't send it to anybody because I'm going to use it. I I'm going to promote it when we, our doc airs next month. But I'm telling you, but people want to see that. They do. They really do. I am so grateful that you, you, you kind of slummed it. You must have been at a low point in your career to come on my show, but I've only been nagging you for a year and a half. I cannot, I cannot thank you enough, and I will indeed pay it forward. The omnivorous... Uh, protagonist, uh, journalistic <laughs> protagonist, Soledad O'Brien. She's won every award in the business. She's been on CNN, NBC News, MSNBC, KRON. I cannot thank you enough. The pleasure was mine. Thanks for having me. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News on the NPR One app, which I cannot live without, on NPR.org and on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Hang in there, and we shall talk with you again next week. Thank you.